I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me now to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 31. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah. This is probably the most important chapter in the whole book of Jeremiah, especially the part we're going to get to next time we're in Jeremiah, probably first of the year. The part about the new covenant. Jesus talked about it in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. The letter to the Hebrews has the longest quotation in the New Testament from the Old Testament, and it's from Jeremiah 31. This is a really important text in the Bible to get into our hearts and our minds. But today, Lord willing, we're just going to get up through verse 26 of chapter 31. This may be the most Christmassy chapter in the whole book of Jeremiah. I love it that the Lord has landed us on this chapter, on this Sunday, in this month of this year. Look what he says at the end of verse 13. It's most clear in the NIV translation. Here's what the Lord promises to his people. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Comfort and joy, a hope and a future. This chapter is full of tidings of comfort and joy. How much more Christmassy can you get? Of course, as we read it, we will also see that it reflects some of the darkest and saddest parts of the Christmas story as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start back at verse 1. This is really a continuation of chapter 30. There's no big break between the chapters. It's supposed to go together with what we studied last Sunday. It's all about the restoration of God's people. That's the theme of chapters 30 through 33. It's the hope and the future predicted in chapter 29. God says that the people of Israel and Judah were going to be rescued from exile, brought back from a distant land to prosper and flourish and live securely under the new king from the line of David. And we know who that is, right? Listen to the first two verses of Jeremiah 31, verses 1 and 2. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survived the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. Now you can easily see that this is a prophecy of the future. The word will is repeated over and over again. This rescue and rest will come at a later date. When? Well, he says, at that time. L last week he said, the days are coming. That's the theme of our Advent season this year. The days are coming. Mike and Gail read that the days of righteousness are coming. They aren't here yet, not fully. But they're on the way. And we said last week that it's important to understand that Old Testament prophecies are often fulfilled in stages. Like the glass we filled up over the course of the sermon last week. Mar Maria, would you give me the first slide? Oh, it won't come up? Rats. Okay. Well, you remember the picture of... You can go ahead and put the slide... Oh, does the last song come up? I hope it does. We'll sing it anyway. <laughs> um, last week, you remember, I put up that picture that Ben took of the mountains. Was that in Colorado? Yeah. Are you missing Colorado? Yeah, I'll bet. 
Okay, we got the last song. That's good. Okay. Um, we put up this, uh, the, uh, the, the picture of the... You can go ahead and hide that, then we'll come back to it once you figure that out. Okay. Um, we put up the, slide, the, the picture of the mountain range where the mountains might look the same height from a distance. Do you remember this? But you can actually... Um, you actually reach the shorter ones first and then the bigger ones later. Or like we say, something is going to happen at Christmas time, but we're not clear which Christmas, like Les's three Christmas gifts last week, the tricycle, the Ford Mustang, and the pair of suspenders. And he's so excited about all three gifts. They all came at Christmas time, but at three different Christmases. Well, that's how it often works in the Bible. Might be this one or one or more in the future. And that was true of what we saw in chapter 30, and it's true of what we're looking at today in chapter 31. Some of this was fulfilled 70 years from the start of the exile. Some of it was fulfilled at the first Christmas time. And some of it is still being fulfilled today in this room and will be fully fulfilled, filled to overflowing, at the second advent when Jesus Christ returns. I think we'll see more of that clearly as we walk down through it. So far, in verse 1, the Lord has promised to restore his people. Did you notice that it's all 12 tribes? Not just the southern kingdom of Judah, but the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Ephraim. All 12 tribes foreshadows the whole people of God, every last one of us. He has promised to restore his people to be his people, to be in a covenant relationship with him. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he's going to just love them. He says, I will come, that's Advent, to give rest to Israel. And that's because of his great love. John, the the song that John picked out, the wonders of his love. That's what we want to look at this morning, the wonders of his love. Look with me at verse 3 and see where we get our sermon title for today. Verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. How's that for a tiding of comfort and joy? Well, it might not have felt very true to them at that exact moment. Remember, they were either in exile, chapter 29, or headed into exile, chapter 30. And that was going to be a horrible experience. Verse 2 said that the people who survived the sword would find favor with the Lord. Many were not going to survive the sword. Jerusalem was going to be assaulted. The temple will be destroyed. And the people of Israel have already been drug off into exile by the Assyrians. And so have a few of the people of Judah already been exiled to Babylon. Many more will follow in their trail. It might seem like the Lord has stopped loving them. But that's not what he said. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And more than that, he said, I have drawn you, and he doesn't mean like he did a picture drawing of them. He means that he he drew them like to himself with loving kindness. That's our beloved Hebrew word chesed. Loyal love, faithful love, unfailing faithfulness, gracious, steadfast love. 
His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His chesed endures forever. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And if he could say that to the 12 tribes of Israel in rebellion then, how much more is he saying something just like that to you and me today for whom his own beloved son has died? He is saying it to you today. If you are in Christ, he's saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Put your name in that verse this morning. Right where it says you, say you. Put your name down there. I have loved with an everlasting love. I have drawn with loving kindness. They might have thought, you might have thought, we all might have thought that that we had reached the end of God's love. And certainly we should not presume upon it or sin all the more so that chesed may abound. But the Lord's great love is unfathomable. It's just so wonderful. It's everlasting. The, The Hebrew word for that is olam. It's the word we sometimes translate ancient or forever. His steadfast love endures olam. It's a forever kind of love, a love that never ends. The rest of what we're going to look at this morning is like one word picture after another about this everlasting love and what it's like and what it does in the hearts and lives of God's people. I've got five things I want to point out that God's everlasting love does according to these verses. And they all start with the same letter. And they're all one word each, so you don't even need a PowerPoint to get them. Here's the first one. Restoration. Restoration. If you're taking notes, that's the first one. God's love restores. Look with me at verse 4. The Lord says, I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Do you see the restoration? I tried to punch the key word in there as I read it. It's the word again. Again rebuilt. Again dancing, again planting, again going off to worship to Jerusalem. What's really interesting is that these words are directed toward the northern kingdom of Israel, Ephraim. They've been in exile already for a century. But the Lord promises them restoration. That's how much he loves them. He's going to restore them. And again, Jeremiah is getting to do the good part for a change. Remember what he was given as a mission at his commissioning? Chapter 1, verse 10. See today I, the Lord, appoint you, Jeremiah, over nations and kingdoms to do six things. Anybody remember what they are? Extra credit this morning if you can remember. The first one is the title of our series. Don't make me go back to chapter 1. What's the title of our whole series? Uprooted, right? Jeremiah is going to speak this word, and they're going to be uprooted. Second, tear down. 
We've seen a lot of that over the course of Jeremiah. To destroy and overthrow, that's on the way. That's imminent. And then he says, to build and to plant. Finally, he gets to go to the, to the good stuff. What Do you hear it in verse 4? I will build you up again, and you will be rebuilt. And in verse 5, you will plant vineyards again and enjoy their fruit. The Lord's everlasting love restores. It's like that. It's like the words of that song that John picked. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. No more thorns infest the ground or sins and sorrows grow. Right? When the Lord returns, all that's going to be turned back. Everything's going to be restored. For the exiles, it will restore them to the land once more. Look at verse 7. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble because I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Do you hear the words of love there? A father's love for his beloved boy. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And that love is going to bring you home. Home from Assyria. Home for the remnant. Home for the good figs. Home for the weak and the vulnerable. Not just the survival of the fittest. Home for the repentant. It says they will come home with weeping. Doesn't he sound not just like a loving father, but a loving shepherd? Verse 9 there. I will lead them besides streams of water. On a level path where they will not stumble. Sounds like the 23rd Psalm to me. Some of the same words in the Hebrew. Israel was going to be restored. Brought back like the flock. And that's just a tiny picture of how God's people are restored. Psalm 23 says, He restores my soul. Right? Can you say that this morning? He restores my soul. The Lord is my Loving shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And it's not just restoration. It's full-on redemption. That's the second one. Redemption. First one is restoration. The second one is redemption. Look with me at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. There he says it, shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Jeremiah is supposed to tell the nations, tell the distant coastlands. He's supposed to get on CNN. He's supposed to get on Fox News and and shout it from the mountaintops that the one who scattered them because of their unrepentant sin will be regathering them and re-shepherding them. One flock 
under one shepherd. And who's that? It's he himself that's doing it. So it's the Lord and his Messiah, who is the Lord come as one of us. It's Jesus, right? And how's he going to do it? He does it through ransom and redemption. He's going to rescue his people out of bondage. He's going to free them. He's going to pay their very debt to release them. That's what ransom and redemption are. A payment to free someone from something, often slavery. A payment to secure someone's release. A payment to free someone, often paid for by a close family member. What does that remind you of? The cross, right? Remember what Jesus said, that that he did not come to be served at his first advent, but to serve and to give his life as a what? A ransom for many. A ransom for many. It's an everlasting love. Oh, the wonders of his love. Have you put your faith in his love? In that ransom payment? In that redemption that he effected on the cross? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, wasn't just born as a baby. He was. But then he grew up. And he lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross to pay for the sins of all who will come to him. That's why he came that first Christmas. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. To redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. Restoration and redemption. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And joy. That's number three. Their everlasting love, God's everlasting love leads to rejoicing. That's number three, rejoicing. How could it not? In verse four, the Lord said that they should take up their tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Wish we'd had a tambourine in one of our songs this morning to to remind us of that. When the Lord restores and redeems his people, they will be led to rejoice. Look at verse 12. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and the herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. (laughs) What a day of rejoicing that will be. It'll be like a Christmas feast. He says that the return exiles will be like a well-watered garden. I love that. Isn't that a beautiful image? Well, it only began to be fulfilled in 538 B.C. when the exiles straggled back to Jerusalem. It was wonderful for them, and they wept and cried. Read Psalm 126 again this afternoon to hear about their songs of joy. But this wasn't the total end of their sorrow. It wasn't like happiness from there on. That began at the first Christmas, right? When the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. That's when joy really showed up. There's one of these that says joy, that one over there, right? Joy to the world. But we're still, even that didn't end our sorrow completely, did it? 
We're still waiting for sorrow and sighing to flee away, aren't we? Anybody cry this week? I'll bet many of us did. Again, this sounds like, like Revelation 21 that I read last week. That's where the final fulfillment of this promise actually comes. That's where the tallest of the mountain ranges is. That's the overflowing cup. Revelation 21, where the Lord promises, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Or Jeremiah 31, 12, They will sorrow no more. Can you imagine a world without sorrow? When we don't have prayer requests, we just have praise items forever? Joy and only joy? And then more joy? And then more joy after that? And then more joy after that? Forever and ever and ever? Verse 13, Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. I love that he says that the old men will dance. That's a picture for you, isn't it? Don't worry, I'm not going to do it for you today. Everybody's going to dance. Heaven is a dance party because of the Lord's everlasting love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. So you're going to dance. Rejoice. I will give them comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy instead of sorrow. But that's still in the future. It's here. We can rejoice today. We have this morning. We will some more. But it's still also coming in fullness. Because right now, it's not just rejoicing. There's also weeping, and lots of it. Jeremiah has wept and wept. We call him the weeping prophet. Jesus will, in the scriptures, weep. I think he probably wailed (laughs) as a little baby, and he definitely cried at the tomb of Lazarus. You and I have wept, and will weep some more. And Rachel has wept as well. Look at verse 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Who is this Rachel? Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, the patriarch in the book of Genesis. It was from Rachel that Jacob had two sons, both very beloved, Joseph, and who was the other one? Benjamin, right? Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Do you know where she was buried? Ramah, about five miles north of Jerusalem, not far from Bethlehem, which was also on the exile's route from Jerusalem to Babylon. One of the commentaries I read this week said that it was effectively a deportation center. Rachel's son Joseph had two sons of his own. They were named Ephraim and, extra credit, 
Manasseh. That's right, Ephraim and Manasseh. And the whole northern kingdom was nicknamed Ephraim after him and his tribe. Rachel, therefore, was the grandmother of the northern kingdom. And now they're in exile, one by one shipped off. And so metaphorically, this Rachel who tried so hard to have children, read the book of Genesis, how she worked so hard to get children, this Rachel weeps at the fate of her children lost to the enemy. It's like her spirit watches them march off to death in exile, and she weeps inconsolably. And do you know where Jeremiah 31, 15 is quoted in the New Testament? Extra credit. Matthew chapter 2. Part of the Christmas story. The darkest, saddest part. Matthew writes, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the wise men, the magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. This is Matthew quoting Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The quintessential expression of a mother's grief over children lost to the enemy. And those mothers were right to mourn and wail. Heather and I lost a child in April of 1999, and I wailed in that hospital room like I have seldom wailed before or since. But the Lord also has another message for this metaphorical Rachel, and that is that her sorrow, as great as it is, will one day be turned into joy because he's going to verse 13 again turn their mourning into gladness he will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow look at verse 16 this is what the lord says restrain your voice from weeping and your ear your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded declares the lord they will return from the land of the enemy So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Hope and future. Does that sound familiar? One of those is a different Hebrew word than than the other, but it sounds to me a lot like 2911. Hope and a future. Rachel, there's going to be a hope and a future. You have every reason to rejoice, and so do we. Amen? Amen. We have such a great future. We have every reason to rejoice. We have reasons to weep. And so it is right to do so. But not just to weep. We also have every reason to rejoice. And every reason to repent. That's number four this morning. Four of five. Repentance. When we finally understand the Lord's everlasting love, we finally wake up to our need for repentance. See how the Lord says it in verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You discipline me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Now, this too is a prophecy. This is still down the line. 
Israel has not yet repented like this, but the Lord can hear it coming prophetically. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. It's going to happen. And Ephraim will be like, I was so dumb. I am so ashamed. I repent. Your discipline, Lord, your exile, the judgment that came through Assyria has done its work on me, and I finally have woken up to repentance. So how will the Lord respond to that? When, when you come to the Lord like that, what kind of a response do you expect to get? <clears throat> Sorry, too late. I gave you three strikes, you used up them all. It's too late. No, that's not how he responds. Look at verse 20. Is not Ephraim my dear son? They're in exile. They've been in exile a hundred years. The child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Sounds to me like the book of Hosea, doesn't it? Oh, how he loves him. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. He's the father in the story of the prodigal son, right? His heart is so full of love everlasting love. That's the heart of the Father for you and for me. So that when we finally realize that, when we finally wake up to repentance, He accepts us home. Like the prodigal son finally waking up and heading for home. The Lord tells His people to make sure that they mark the way back home. Look at verse 21. Set up road signs. Put up guideposts. Take note of the highway, the road you take. Pay attention to how you got out here in exile. So you know the way back. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to your towns. There's that word shuv again. Repent. Come back. Verse 22. How long will you wander, O faithful daughter? Stop wandering. Stop vacillating. Stop fence-sitting. And repent. Come home. If you are running from him today, He is saying this to you right now. His heart yearns for you. Do you know the heart of the Father? He yearns for you. He has great compassion for you. In Jesus, He has loved you with an everlasting love. So stop running and return to Him. Run into His fatherly arms and be restored redeemed and refreshed. That's the last one. Number five, refreshment. His everlasting love is so great that we who are his children will experience everlasting refreshment. Look at the end of verse 22. The Lord will create a new thing on earth. A woman will surround a man. Now, I'm not sure what that means. (laughs) And I, I don't think anybody else really knows either. It's very hard to translate and to interpret. Some, some people even see the virgin birth in that verse. Maybe you do. I guess that's possible because many have seen it over the course of church history. I'm just not sure. It could be translated that a woman embraces or encircles or shelters or protects a man. It's hard to translate. It's hard to understand. My best guess, and it's just a guess, is that it's like a saying from the time that means something like, Pigs are going to fly, or 
wonders will never cease, or a woman will surround a man, or we're living in a time of miracles. What is clear to me is that the Lord is saying that he's going to create a new thing on earth. A wonder of wonders, a miracle of miracles. And I think that he's talking not about the virgin birth, though it's part of it, but he's talking about the new covenant that he's just about to announce in this chapter and the new creation that comes out of it. How he's going to give his people new hearts and eventually new bodies and eventually a new world to live in. And how everything will be restored to how it was supposed to be in the first place. And then, even better. Look at verse 23. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words, The Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. People will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. It turns out that this prophecy has come as the product of a prophetic dream. Jeremiah wakes up from it, and he says, after all the nightmares we've had for 40 years, it was so good to have a good dream. I can't wait for that prophetic dream to come true. So when will this prophecy be fulfilled? Well, verse 23 says, when I bring them back from captivity. And here he's talking more to the southern kingdom of Judah. They will once again say, the Lord bless you, O righteous dwelling, O sacred mountain. The Lord will bless Jerusalem. The Lord will bless the new temple. The Lord will bless Mount Zion on which it was built. And that happened in 538 and beyond when the exiles straggled back home after the book of Daniel, after the book of Esther, after Babylon, after the Medes and the Persians, during the book of Nehemiah. But I think that that was just a prophetic foretaste of the refreshment to come. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. I think that is fully fulfilled in the one who was born on Christmas Day. The one who said, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Tidings of comfort and joy. A hope and a future. Restoration, redemption, rejoicing, repentance, and refreshment. All because of the Lord's everlasting love. That's the message of Christmas, isn't it? That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. He so loves the world. He says it to us today. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Amen.